You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Reza, over the next two hours, we are going to be talking about two topics. In the first half of the program, we're going to talk about the NHS uh, being understaffed and under pressure. We're going to take a look at, uh, a brief look at the history of the NHS, how it actually started, what Islam says about helping those in need. And then in the second half of the program, we're going to talk about hospitality. We're going to take you through... Uh, to different parts of the world. We're going to talk to a number of guests that we have invited for today to talk about what their culture, what their um, country stands for when it comes to hospitality, what to expect when you go to certain countries, the do's and don'ts, and a lot more. As always, the 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call if you want to join the conversation and if you want to get in contact uh, with us over our social media platforms, then you can do so on Twitter. You can uh, send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK and also on Instagram, uh, Voice of Islam UK. We're asking you the question on our Instagram story. How can we be good hosts to our guests? So if you have anything to say on that, you can send us a comment on Instagram. You can send us an email. You can get in contact over TikTok, Facebook, you name it, any platform that you prefer, we are going to be on there. Just search for Voice of Islam Radio. Now, um, in the Holy Quran, in chapter 16, verse 129, God Almighty states, Verily, Allah is with those who are righteous and do and those who do good. Um, you might have heard, uh, if you uh, are a Muslim, you might have come across a narration as a hadith of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, about basically God speaking to his servant, speaking to his creation, and saying um, to 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 us, basically, that I came to you and I was I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. I was thirsty and you did not um give me to drink and i was ill and you did not come to tend me and man upon this asked oh god almighty you you are the giver you are the sustainer you are the one who gives us uh, to eat and to drink and to clothe how can i have given you to drink how can i have given you to eat how could i have tended to you when you were sick now Upon this, God Almighty then states that my servant, so-and-so servant, he came to you while he was hungry and you did not give him to drink. My so-and-so servant came to you and he was thirsty and you did not give him to drink or to eat before. And my so-and-so servant was, was sick, he was ill, and you did not tend to him, you did not visit him. So, Keeping this in mind, uh, when we move on and we look towards the history of Islam, the early history of Islam, Rufaida bin Saad al-Ansari, one of the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, a female companion, is said or is recognized as the first Muslim professional nurse. Now, her father was a physician, so she learned many of the skills from him. And later on, she not just 
uh, apply those skills herself, but also taught other Muslim women as well. It is said that there was a tent outside the mosque of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, just for sick Muslims. And she used to tend to those sick Muslims. She was both a public health nurse and a social worker. Now, her assistance and support reached Muslims that that were in need, including the poor, the orphans, and the handicapped. And so there's no distinction made between who needed that support. Now, we're all quick to judge and to complain about you know, when we apply things to today's day and age, when it comes to waiting times, when it comes to, oh, there's no GP appointments or overcrowded hospitals, A&E, just you wait and wait and wait and nobody tends to you. And all that leads us sometimes to to vent our anger and our frustration sometimes at the people who have no control over the situation, people who have no influence on how many people are waiting in the A&E or how many nurses are on duty or how many doctors are employed by that hospital. So that's exactly those people that we're talking about, meaning the doctors, the NHS staff, the nurses. And I have seen it myself. I'm sure you, if you've been to a hospital in the middle of the night and you had to wait two, three, four hours, well, that's the situation at least here in, in, in the capital. Maybe in other parts of the country might not be that bad. But we've all seen it, how people let out their frustration, let out their anger um, on these people. And as I said, it's not their fault. It's easy to blame someone, but as we'll find out, and we're going to go through the show talking about these issues and also um, speaking to people who know more about you know, the, the situation that we're in at the moment with the NHS, how it led up to that and what is it that we can do about it. So keeping this in mind, just a brief, quick history lesson. Let's just go through that. Today, or on the, on the 5th of July, not today, on the 5th of July, which is, I think it's a, it's a next Tuesday, the NHS, they're holding a big tea event where people host tea parties and get others to donate via Just Giving page. And this big tea event is to help with the rising costs, to help with the support of projects, with uh, you know the staff and also the volunteers that work for the NHS. And this year, the NHS, with the NHS reaching 74 years, we have a look at how things have changed over the years and how much pressure has mounted on the NHS. Just before we came on in the news, you were probably listening about the rising numbers of COVID cases. So again, from ourselves here at The Voice of Islam, if you have been dropping your mask, if you have been you know, um, not keeping with your hand sanitizers, I think it's a good time to bring them back it was never a good time to leave them in the first place. So if you have kind of left them, um, please do make sure that you, you keep, dig them up again and, and put them in your car, put them in your purses and, and, and in your bags and whatnot to make sure that we try to limit 
the spread of this disease again. So you've heard the numbers rising and the, the fear that we've had throughout the pandemic that the NHS might not be able to cope with the rising numbers, the beds that need to be available, the, the, the staff that needs to tend to those patients, all of that is back in the discussion. So, with that, on the 5th of July, as I said, that's the day of the tea event, but it's not just that. If you go back 74 years, on the 5th of July in 1948, this is, or this was the day, basically, when the the, the uh, here in the UK, you had, for the first time ever, fr- completely free healthcare, and it was not exclusive to your kind of uh, financial status to your economic status economical uh, you know how you stand economically um, but it was free for all it was launched by the then uh, Minister of Health and, and, and Clement Attlee's post-war government uh, Anurin Bevan hopefully I pronounced that correctly um, and it has it had three ideas basically the first one was to help everyone the second one that was free, and thirdly, that the care provided was based on the need and not the ability to pay, because that was how it was before that. Now, we know that in the past 70-odd years, a lot of things have changed. The NHS has grown dramatically, of course, with the time new things were implemented, new things were introduced, just to give you an idea, when it started in 1948, it started with a total of approximately, they say, around 70,000 nurses. Whereas nowadays, these are the numbers from, I think, four or five years ago, 2017, 2018, you had over 217, 220,000 roughly nurses. And when it came to the doctors, you started off with 11,000 doctors, which have now grown up to almost 120 or 115,000 doctors. And of course, the budget has grown as well. But as we've learned, people are living longer. We have new diseases. We have new issues. We have new challenges that need to be tackled. So if you had um, a budget of 12.9 billion in in uh, in nineteen in, in the nineteen fifties, that budget has then grown, and we are close to the hundred and fifty, if not even more, billion pounds annually for just to take care of the NHS. But as we've learned, there are a lot more options. Uh, there are a lot more challenges that we are facing. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. Just before we get our first guest for today, just to give you an idea, here in February 2022, this year, the way it's looking, the situation that we have at our hands at the moment is that the number of, of, of people on a waiting list for hospital treatment rose to a record of nearly 6.1 million people in December last year. And the waiting list rose consistently and has risen more quickly since early 2021. The 18-week target that has been set for treatment, clearly, has not been met since 2016. And then you look at the A&E, the number of people going to the A&E, they rose above the pre-pandemic levels in autumn 2021, but also fell in December and January. Now, patients, I've been through that as well, I'm sure you have as well, waiting over four hours in the hospital in A&E, 
That has risen further since the pandemic, and a new record high of 38.8% was reached last year in December. And lastly, the NHS staff numbers, they have increased during the pandemic. Now, the number of hospital doctors was 9.3 higher in October last year than in October the year before in 2019, and the number of nurses was 7.6% higher as well. However, the number of NHS vacancies in England rose from 87,000 in September to 99,460 in September 2021. Here with us to talk a little bit more about this topic is our first guest for today. She's the Director of External Affairs at the NHS Charities Together. With us on the line, we have Sarah Campion. Sarah, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the program. Great to have you on. Now, um, I want to ask you about the NHS Charities Together. Uh, Introduce uh, us yourself uh, to the listeners today. And what is your aim at uh, the NHS Charities Together? Thank you. So NHS Charities Together is the national independent charity caring for the NHS, essentially. So we represent the network of NHS charities across the whole of the UK. So there are NHS charities based with every single NHS trust. Mm-hmm. So that's every hospital, every ambulance service, every mental health service, and every community health service has a, has a charity. So we represent them, and together we raise extra funds that help the NHS go that little bit further for, for staff and for patients and for volunteers. And sure. I heard you talking then just about the, the challenges that the NHS is facing. So yeah. obviously it's gone through the most challenging time in its history of course. over the last two years. And we're there to, to help with that, to go above and beyond the, the core government budget and to to really help take pressure off the system and support yeah. staff at what's been the most challenging time. No, I want to ask so you in, about this. This is a good thing that you mentioned. I mean, we the 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 one bit that you know people like me have done maybe was you know, to stand outside at six p.m. and clap for the NHS. We remember them yeah. in our prayers. The people at the front line. Of course, I mean it's 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 been it's been a very very challenging time, but it has brought the people of the UK together. We appreciated every ambulance that drove by, every doctor that I've met, every nurse that I've come across, every GP that I maybe have called or or spoken to in that time. You started to appreciate the work that they're doing. But for you as a charity, how 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 was that period? Um, and and were there any long term impacts on of COVID on, on on the NHS as well? That's a really good question because yes, there were that support you talked about there, which was incredible, wasn't it? When we all went out, yeah. pots and pans and clapping, and all the fundraising that people did, it actually came through the COVID appeal that that we had at NHS charities together. So. Prior, than that, prior to that, we'd been the membership organisation I, I talked about. But when the COVID appeal happened, we suddenly raised £150 million in the space wow. of just a few months, which was just incredible. It shows just how much the public wanted mm. to support the NHS at that time and how much they value it. And that money has been used to fund over 600 projects around the UK, supporting staff, for example, with counselling, helplines, a place to rest during a busy shift, um, it's also helped fund emergency volunteers, for example, in the ambulance service, mm. helping to save lives and take pressure off the service. And it's helped fund projects in the community that are preventing ill health um, and essentially supporting people once they come out of hospital. So it's it's been put to a very good use. But that moment was a transformation for us because mm. we went from a mem- just a membership organisation, which we continue to be, to also having that fundraising aspect and that ability to get grants out through that network of NHS charities and to make a real difference for patients and staff. 
But I would say, sadly, those challenges haven't gone away. And I heard you talking about them before. So I'm also here, as I think you know, to talk about the NHS Big T, which Mm. is an event we're having next week. And that's about raising more funds to help support the NHS. So um, how 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 do we do that then? Tell tell us about this big <laughs> <the> event. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sorry, I, I slipped back. <laughs> so, yeah, the the big T, the NHS big T, is essentially the event we organise to mark the NHS's birthday, hmm. which is the fifth of July. But it can be done at any time during July as well, and it's essentially an invitation for people to host a tea party. It can be at home. It can be. At, the office it can be at school it can be virtual even and essentially a chance to host a tea party raise a cuppa and say thank you to the nhs and raise funds as well in the process so if people want to get involved it's not too late at all and they can go to the big t website mm-hmm. which is nhsbigt.co.uk there's more information there and they can sign up there too but as i say sadly the challenges haven't gone away and we've got yeah. a really emotionally and physically exhausted workforce now who continue to need support so i think people getting behind things like the big t showing their support and helping to raise extra funds are are, are one way that people can Mm. get involved um sarah if you don't mind me asking i mean i i'm I'm gonna basically i i i I would be able to explain this to someone with you know with that little knowledge that i have over the years that we've spoken about the nhs and 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 the wonderful people that work for the nhs and we've spoken to them um but if if you can help me out here for for people um who have this opinion of and i've read this online as well uh spoken to people who who were of you know some similar opinion it's all good and fine to have have charities and to 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 give for us as well to donate to charities such as yours who are doing wonderful work but this is this shouldn't be our job the nhs is something that the government is responsible for that and if you compare i mean when when you look at the numbers you have a budget of 150 billion pounds uh, what's 150 or 200 or 300 million going to do um, f- forgive me for asking it in such a rude way. <laughs> I know how it sounds, but um, uh, <laughs> what what would you say about that? Yeah, and it's a, it's a good question. It's an important one to talk about. Um, so, as I mentioned, NHS Charities Together it's a national independent charity. Hmm. So we we are separate from the NHS, and we represent the network of charities that fund the extras that go beyond the core NHS budget. So yeah. it's about enabling the health service to go further. Um, essentially the scale of the health challenge is so huge that the NHS can't face it alone and those challenges have of course been exacerbated by COVID-19 as well. Um, So since its inception the NHS has always had charities involved in supporting it and and those challenges of an ageing population and increasing numbers of long-term conditions haven't gone away and and if anything have been exacerbated by, by the last two years as well. So that's where NHS charities come in by funding those extra things, funding innovations, helping around the sides of the system, if you like, to take pressure off it. So we talked about funding volunteers. um, That really helps take pressure off. Funding um, ill health prevention. So projects out in the community, over 700 of them that we funded over the last two years that are helping to stop people from getting ill in the first place. So those are things that the core budget can't stretch to, but we can help there. And that's helping create better health care for everybody wonderful 
Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today. If anybody of you would like to get involved or if you want to find out more about this, you can go to nhsbigt.co.uk and all the information is on there and uh, that should hopefully answer all of your questions. But if not, do feel free to get in contact with NHS Charities. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sarah Campion, Sarah Campion the Director thank of External Affairs me. for the NHS Charities. Together, have a great thank day. Thank you. Thank you very much. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Now we've spoken about the stats, we've spoken about the numbers and the situation that we have, but don't forget that the NHS is made up of people like you and I. It's made up of people who have such um, a stressful job sometimes because people's lives are in their hands, and that, of course, has also an impact on the mental health of people. The NHS Employers website reported on, uh, reported on the 9th of June this year that according to research done by the mental health charity Mind, 30% of staff disagreed with the statement, I would feel able to talk openly with my line manager if I was feeling stressed. And 55%, 56% of employers said they would like to do more to improve staff well-being, but don't feel they have the right training or guidance. Now, mental health is one of the key reasons for sickness absence within the NHS. Think about the two and a half, three years that we've just gone through, where you had, you've seen, we've all seen the 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 videos of of nurses and doctors just just breaking apart while talking about the pressure, while talking about people dying, while talking about people lying in 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 those beds on uh, intensive care units or just in 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 the hallway sometimes because it was like a war zone because it was just too crowded too many people coming in at all at once so one in 6.8 people are experiencing mental health problems in uh, in the workplace and evidence suggests that 12.7% of all sickness absence days in the UK can be attributed to mental health conditions. And these are not, again, not just numbers. If you put them uh, and apply them to individuals, um, it kind of gives you an idea how serious this situation is. But how can we, if we have someone in in our families or if you have someone that you know who works in healthcare, who's an healthcare worker... How can we support them? It's all good and fine. And sometimes, as I said, people won't take to social media. They won't post public videos or or, or, uh, opinions or write about it or, or, or talk to you about it as well. So how do we support them? Now, many healthcare workers, as I said, they're busy. They're taking on extra work and dealing with more stress than normal. If a friend or if a family member is in this situation, we should be mindful of what they're going through and, and make sure that, you know, we're, we're not risking too much um, of them. For example, if you reach out and don't receive a text back right away, <laughs> well, sometimes that can cause problems, but offer that person some grace. Sometimes, you know, the best thing that you can give someone is, is is just a little bit of space. And isn't that something that we all need in life at some point, at some time? Or 
You know, think of small things that would you know put a smile on a healthcare worker's face or make their day better. Maybe buy them a coffee or send them some self-care products in the mail to help them relax. I know that from the point of view, that from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we during the pandemic, we and I've done this in my local area as well, and this is something that we've done across the country as well. We've reached out to the NHS. We reach out through the hospitals, the police, the 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 the, the emergency services, basically, and just to bring them some food, uh, lunch one day, or um, just ask them how they're doing. If there's anything that they need, they can come to us. Look, we we we've been blessed. We have been blessed that it's always the other way around. When we rely on some, when we need someone from the NHS services, fire, emergency, uh, ambulance services, or the police, we pick up the phone and we call them and we expect them to be there. As we've learned in the last three years that we were all in this together, nobody was safe. Doctors were the first ones we know globally who lost their lives in, in, in this pandemic. So they were at the forefront. They risked it all. I remember, I mean, this is on a personal level. I I remember seeing doctors video calling their kids and their families because I've seen this with my own eyes because they could not go be with them for, for days and days. So the, the it's small gestures that we can try um, to 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 give or to do that maybe um, put a smile on on their face or makes their day. Never know. Everyone's needs we know are different. If you're not sure, if we're not sure how how we can support a healthcare worker that we know, be it running errands or helping with household chores, the best way maybe is to just ask. Can I do something for you? Are you okay? And share a quick thank you. Yeah, a little goes a long way. You've seen the the walls um, in, in, in the A and E or or the children wards or different um, wards with these thank you notes. But I mean, if if I went there with my child and they helped my child or my family or anyone, I don't have to say thank you only then. For us as Muslims, God Almighty states and God Almighty has said this to his prophet that if you are not thankful, if you're not grateful to people, you cannot be grateful to God Almighty. So it starts with our relationship that we have with each other. So simply telling a healthcare worker how much they are appreciated, I'm sure, is going to brighten their day. It can be as simple as you know, sending a text or giving a card for no reason, even if you did not go to that hospital or if you were not treated by that hospital or that staff. Um, so this is something that we can do. But how does the NHS actually support its workers? That's something that we're going to talk about as well. Um, according to the NHS, there is support available for staff such as staff mental health and well-being hubs so you might have had that that question that if um there there, there are um issues or or you know, concerns about the mental health of uh, healthcare workers what is the organization doing about it 
So you have these staff mental health and well-being hubs that have been set up to provide health and social care, um, colleagues rapid access to assessment and local evidence-based mental health services, and the support where um, the support is needed. And these hubs, they offer um, the, the confidential and, and free of charge um, treatment for all health and social care staff. Then you have well-being apps. The They have given uh, the NHS staff uh, free access to a number of well-being apps to support with their mental mental health and well-being. And um, one other thing I think was, was um, the NHS People Plan. They've set out the ambition that every member of the NHS should have a health and well-being conversation with their line manager or peer, and that as a part of this conversation, these line managers, they will be then expected to discuss an individual's health and well-being and any you know, flexible working requirements, as well as equality, diversity, inclusion, and, and, and whatnot. Of course, there are many other ways that are available, and if you are uh, um, uh, an NHS uh, worker, if you do work for the NHS, if you do need some help, I'm sure you know where to go. You can always search on the NHS website, you can talk with your line manager, you can talk with your whoever is your superior, if not, but talk to colleagues as well. Um, and as I said, there are charities as well. We've spoken to Sarah, the Director of External Affairs for the NHS Charities. Together, it's not just about getting the funding. It's also about sometimes just a support, just a physical support that you need sometimes to to um, to, 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 to go through uh, a, a tough patch or through a rough day, maybe, that you are having. So you have these uh, different charities, Healthcare Workers Foundation, Caval Nurses Trust, Doctor Support Network, the Point of Care Foundation, just to mention a few of them. Now, we're going to take a short break here and then we'll be back after that talking about GPs as well and some of the solutions, of course, that we maybe have to look at or that we can take, we can take uh, as a public to relieve some of the pressure that is on the NHS at the moment. Don't forget, we're talking about hospitality in the next half of the program. So if you have any words of advice, if you have anything to say about how we can be good hosts to our guests, then by all means, go to our Instagram page, Voice of Slime UK, on our Instagram story, and leave a comment. You're listening to The Draft Time Show today with myself, Reza. <laughs> You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbors. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbors with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Zar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, 
while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. And thank you very much for joining us today here on the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Raza. We're talking about the NHS and specifically the um, fact that the NHS is currently understaffed and under a lot of pressure. So on the 5th of July, which is this coming Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken, there is going to be a big tea event where people um, will have the opportunity or are encouraged to host tea parties and get others to donate to um, the NHS charities together or the different charities that support um, the NHS or the NHS worker uh, workforce um, uh, with with these donations, and we said, and when we spoke to Sarah before as well, um, there are different ways. Yes, you have uh, d- different charities that support the 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 the, the NHS in ways that uh, maybe the 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 budget or you know the, the the standard approach of the government can not and we've spoken to some of uh, we've spoken about some of the the issues that specifically those who work for the NHS these key workers that they're facing when it comes to mental health when it comes to uh, how we as as families as friends as people who know people in the, in uh, who's a, who's a health healthcare worker how we can support them but one thing that we wanted to talk about as well are the GPs now the British Medical Association they produced a report this year 
um, actually in June, um, they said that England England has a shortage of of GPs. The overall number of GPs has seen little growth since 2015, with the number of GP partner partners declining significantly over that time. If you go back in February 2020, in a bid to reverse the 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 you know the, the stasis in, in GP workforce numbers, the government announced a drive to recruit an additional 6,000 GPs by 2024. Yet, despite these promises, as of April 2022, and that's the date that we have um, the latest data, we actually now have the equivalent of 1,622 fewer fully qualified full-time GPs compared to 2015. Not great, no doubt. Now, in the year between March 2021 and April this year, the NHS lost 379 GP partners and 365 salaried and locum GPs, which means that the number of fully qualified GPs by headcount decreased by 743 net in just under a year. I don't know how you um, feel about this and how your situation is. I hope and pray it's better than than what some of the people that I know had to go through when you call the GP. There's absolutely 99% of the time, absolutely no way that you can get an appointment on that same day. If somebody cancels, if somebody drops, yes, maybe after 1 or 2 p.m. whenever you call, you may get lucky, but the average waiting time is around two to three weeks from what I've spoken to people and from what I've heard from people. Now, it's not just about that. The, the, the shortage is one thing, but the GPs, they're also changing their working patterns. Now, since 2017... Um, the number of GPs working full-time hours or more in GP practice-based settings has been steadily decreasing. So in reality, part-time as a GP very often means working a number of additional unpaid hours just to get through the large numbers of appointments and essential patient follow-up, which is basically administrative work. And then you have the appointment levels. Of course, General practice appointments, bo- appointment bookings reached record highs over the winter um, of, of 2021, with GPs seeing more patients than ever. And then this year, in April 2022, you had a total of 24 million appointments, which is less than 29.7 million booked in the previous month. So you're not in this alone. The situation that we have at the moment is not good, it's not great for anyone. But as I said in the beginning, there is a number of factors that need to be included in this, that need to be considered. Yes, when we call the GP, when we call or when we go to the NHS, when we go to the hospital, there's certain expectations that people have, which in most cases may not be met. But in that moment, just keep a cool head and just remember this is not that person's fault who's dealing with you at the moment this is not the fault of the nurse or the 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 admin staff or 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 the gp or the physician or whoever it is that you're talking to who's across you this is not their fault 
There are bigger things behind them and they are just doing their job. And that's something I think if you take away something from today, from all the pressure that we have and everything else included, uh, just keep this in mind the next time you're very, very close to, to maybe have a go at someone. Now, another um, aspect that we want to talk about are the... Oh, we're going to talk to our next guest actually for today. Barida Farukh is with us on the line. She's a second-year midwifery student. And uh, just to give you an idea how much work a midwife has to go through, we're going to talk to her and ask her a few questions. Barida, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drag Time Show. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for welcoming me. Jazakum Thank you so much for having uh, for for joining us today. Um, now, as a midwifery student, how many mm-hmm. hours do you put in a day with studies and 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 so run us through your day basically. Yep. So as part as part of our studies, we have to do placement as well. That's working in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Sometimes shifts can be from eight to eight, so twelve and a half hours, um, and some shifts can be nine to six. Um, so that's part of our studies as well, coming in, uh, witnessing things, learning things, practicing our skills hmm. and getting more hands on with the bus. And then obviously by the time you go home, um, you have to prepare for the next day. Sure. And we have to work around 37.5 hours per week. Um, but of course, those hours can go up as well, um, depending on the demands of the NHS, if they need more students working as yeah. well with them. Um, uh, so with that um, it can be quite overwhelming but we do have these blocks of placement so sometimes we'd be just doing placement or we'd just be doing university lectures Um, when it comes to university lectures I find myself spending the whole day really in studying and learning things because with midwifery there's so many aspects of different complexities and um, yeah, I think it probably takes the majority of my time. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah. And and how 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 does coping with pressures now uh, prepare you to look into the future when you actually become a midwife? I mean, those I'm sure you have teachers when you are in the hospital, someone who's who's you know telling you all these things practically how to do. What what what's some of the things that they tell you maybe? So the way they prepare us for real life is. I think they did that quite well because they threw us straight into placement in first year. Yeah. And I think by that way, you get to experience everything firsthand and you get to see the pressures within the NHS. You get to see how everyone works within the maternity unit, um, especially during COVID and after COVID with reduced staff levels as well. Yeah. And it's just a, a case of kind of getting used to it and learning to work in that kind of environment. Um so I think that's kind of how they, they teach us to prepare ourselves for the future. Um, they also have these uh, people called professional midwifery advocates um, who are there to help staff uh, if they feel like the pressure of a midwife is becoming too much, if they feel like it's affecting their mental health, if they feel like they've gone through a very traumatic experience. So uh, we do have access to resources like that and lots and lots of well-being and mental health resources for the staff as well. It's just the fact of utilizing them uh, uh, for our own benefit. So that's kind of how they prepare us for. Wonderful. Now, Maria, I want to ask you about um, the support. I mean, we, we, we're talking about uh, the NHS being understaffed and underfunded, but also there's there's a lot of support that 
uh, is available uh, out there if you are in a, in a situation that where yeah, you feel definitely. that you know you cannot cope. But do you feel that you are being supported in the right right way as a, as a student uh, at this point, uh, hoping to be in the NHS one day? I feel like not many people will probably have the same answer as me simply sure. because um, I think in first year I felt like I was not supported that much but I had to learn that in order to feel supported you have to go out and seek that support as well hmm. so due to that experience I think now that I've come into second year I've um, I've had links with my lecturers and the certain midwives who are here to help you in terms of mental well-being and um, you won't get that support if you don't if you don't ask for it at all because everyone's doing their own thing everyone's uh, busy with their own work with their own job so unless if you actively seek that support I think it's very difficult for students to receive that support. So one advice I would give to students within the NHS um, healthcare is definitely see, actively go and seek out the support, which I know can be so difficult to do, especially if someone is suffering from anxiety or depression. It mm. might be really, really difficult to seek out the support. Um, uh, and in that, in that case, I would say, you know, uh, even for example, me, like I, I'm, I'm here for you. If anyone wants to speak to me mm. in terms of um, the NHS students, um, but yeah, I know it is difficult to seek out support. But I think at the end of the day, that is really what we need to do. And I think it's easy if you if you talk with your peers, isn't it? I mean, mm, there's always definitely. a hesitation to go to the superiors as a student of course or your teachers or your lecturers but amongst each other there's a support network I'm sure. Definitely there is but I I do feel like there are some disparities within that as well because um, I think uh, kind of more ethnic students are probably suffering more Hmm. uh, in terms of within the NHS. I know everyone says you know inclusivity and diversity but there is still a lot of uh, racial abuse, racial discrimination and microaggressions that do exist within the workplace which can contribute to deteriorating mental health Hmm. so i do i do feel like um in terms of relating with your peers everyone's experience would be different as well depending on their status their ethnicity and their background so um i think this is definitely something the nhs needs to work on as well and within the hospital that i'm working at uh we are uh, doing cultural safety training and meetings as well yeah. to help tackle this uh, conscious and unconscious bias within our trust, especially towards the students. Uh, so hopefully that helps to make a difference in the future. Wonderful. Maria Jazakala, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, we wish you all the best you. for the future. Um, second Thank-a. year midwifery student, Maria Farouk, with us on all the right. line. Thank Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Don't forget, you can get in contact with us on uh, via Twitter as well as on Instagram. Moving on to our next guest for today, Dr. Chris Strether is with us online. He's the medical director for NHS London. Good afternoon, peace upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Dr. Strether. Hello, and it's very nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, as as a as a medical director, um. For NHS London, if I if I may ask you, what does your job consist of? Yeah, I'm I'm sort of smiling because um, <laughs> just just as you said that, an ambulance went past the window <laughs> and uh, it made me made me think about think about my day job quite a lot. So, so I think there are there are three bits to my job, um, and I'll, I'll talk about the the um, one one bit first because it's probably the most you know exciting and uplifting. 
Um, so the, the, the first bit is, and hopefully I spend about a third of my time on this, which is about working with um, managers and doctors and other health professionals about trying to make um, care for patients and outcome for patients better in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. And w- we do that through a series of networks, we, we call clinical networks, there are 11 of these. And they cover things like stroke care, um, um, diabetes care, cardiac care, um, etc. So, so, you know, common large disease processes. And we, we get doctors and other healthcare professionals, um, you know, together to look at um, data and and you know, information about the way we look after patients huh. with with the intention of trying to make make that better um those networks have worked have done you know some fantastic work in during the covid pandemic on things like um remote monitoring of people at home so we can you know monitor people's oxygen in their blood at home when they were you know suffering from mild covid so they didn't have to come to hospital and things like that but we we also done some bigger things on improving care for you know people with diabetes or hmm. or strokes and things like that and then then there's the, the, the so that's the most important and exciting bit about my job trying to make you know things better for for patients and populations of people then there's another bit um where you know i'm i'm just part of the the, the leadership team for the nhs in london mm-hmm. and we have a lot of set piece meetings and statutory functions we have to carry out and and then i suppose the, the third thing is you know, there, there are, you know, there's a lot of routine work and the work I've already described about trying to make life better. But the, the, there are also, you know, bad things that happen and, you know, crises that happen yeah. that you have to deal with. And, and our experience over the last two and a half years of COVID is a, a very long and, and large example of that. But, yeah. but there's often something like, you know, monkeypox or polio or sure. you know, vaccination that, that, comes, that comes up. it's it's never it's never boring i'm I'm sure it (laughs) every day is different (laughs) um dr christ um i i want to ask you because today we, we were trying to focus a little bit more on on the people that make the nhs now with the pressure the nhs is under how do you make sure how 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 do we make sure that they themselves are being looked after so the mental health the physical health wise etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean over the last 3 years these wonderful individuals they they've been there for us for, for i mean putting their lives on the line but we never thought about what they are going through and and what what can we do to to help yeah so it's um so it's you know, we, we've got, we're a massive employ, employer of people in London and we, mm. we've got, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of staff really. And they, they've all, they've all worked, you know, above and beyond the call of duty for, for two and a half years now. And, and people are pretty tired. Yeah. And um, they're also, you know, the, yeah, we have a certain amount of staff sickness, and there's a little bit of a blip up in COVID at the moment, and 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 you know that that manifests itself at the moment, um, and so that means the staff who remain have to work even harder. I, I think that the sort of humbling thing is that you know, you know how much people have you know knuckled down and got on with it yeah. during during that time. Um, and 
And, and, and also, when you saw the vaccination program where we recruited lots of people to the health service, and you know, it, we've I think we've de- delivered something like you know, 18 million doses of vaccine in London, and some of that was is with a, a new workforce who mm. we, we attracted in, and some of those people liked it and, w- and will stick and stay, but but it is it it, it is you know. It's it's almost like battle against the tide at the seaside. Hmm. You know, you you have to do things all the time to look after the people who work for us, and to hold on to people that we have got, and to um, and and, and to, um, to to try and um, recruit new yeah. people. And it and it and it. it, it and it's a constant battle, and and you'll you'll know as well as I do that we've got you know London's a, a very diverse city, sure. um, but the in, in some ways the workforce and the health service is a model for diversity. We, we've we've got you know we've got a really diverse mm-hmm. workforce, and so we, we've got to you know we've we've got to look after the you know be. You know, I suppose culturally sensitive yeah. about the way we look after people, um, and, and and not just you know there's not a one size fits all mm. fits all uh, approach to that. So you know it's 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 it's, it's constant. It, it, uh, battle's the wrong word, yeah, but it's yeah. a, it's 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 a constant challenge for challenge. us to make yeah. sure we look after people well. I'm sure you get to ask a lot of people who work with you um, as the medical director if they're okay. Um, if you allow, if I can ask you, Doctor Strether, are you okay? Is everything okay? How are you doing? Yeah, well, <laughs> so, well, thank, thank you. So, so I'm, I, no, no, I, I'm great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 59. I'm relatively near the end of my career, but I, I, I've, I've been, I've, I moved to London in 1984 when I was 21. Oh, that's and the I, year I was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I, and I, I. I, I I'm sitting at Waterloo at the moment, and I can see St Thomas's Hospital where I train, yeah. and and London, and, and actually South London is 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 my home. That's great. Um, but I but I you know I, it, it's a privilege working in the health service, oh, sure. and I I work with I, I work with really fantastic people. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, you know, citizens and patients who who you you know, I I I'm I'm too busy you know in a in a sort of managerial role to yeah. to see much in the way of patients these days. But but when you you know, it, there's nothing much more rewarding than yeah. than doing the right thing to patients and and you know seeing them have good good, good outcomes or even being with them at you know yeah. the most difficult times of their life. And we appreciate it very very much. So so um, I would like to say thank you so much much for all of the the wonderful work that you your staff your team are doing not just here but also just across the country as being part of the yeah, nhs yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you very very much for for your time dr chris strather thank you very much have a great day sir <clears throat> thanks thanks bye 0208687 is the number for you to call we are going to be back after the news at five don't go anywhere stay with us you are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. We are going to move on to second to the second topic for today. Recently, if you've maybe noticed, the hashtag Swedengate was trending on Twitter. Now, the Swedish custom of having guests over but not feeding them 
was something that was highly criticized in this Sweden Gate. Now, in the 60s and 70s, it was customary that if you were over at a friend's house and it was time for dinner, you would go back to your own house to eat, you, uh, to eat or you would stay and wait in another room while your friend finished his meal. Swedes were coming in to defend their culture by explaining that it's a thing born out of poverty-stricken time, which reminds us of our Islamic teachings and stories from early Islam where the hosts and their children would go to bed hungry but fed their guests. So join us as we discuss stories on the hospitality of guests as well as how the companions treated prisoners of war as guests. We talk about the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed, and his approach in hospitality. We're going to take you to different parts of the world and talk to different guests how their um, what their perception of hospitality is how we can be good hosts to our guests and some of the, the some of the you know main features if i can say so about their culture about their traditions about their country's hospitality and we're going to start off with hospitality in islam and what a wonderful Wonderful story I have for you. One of the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, whose name was Azit, uh, was Abu Talha, may Allah be pleased with him, he took a guest home. And this was on the request of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. His wife, upon this, said that um, when he brought that guest home, he said to his wife, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his guest is with us. What is it that we can offer him? And she said, well, we don't really have anything to, to eat. There's only a little bit of food which was available, but was meant to be for their children only. Now, to his wife, he said, it is our children we are worried about most, but you can put them to sleep with some love and affection while they are still hungry. This is the guest of the Prophet. Now, when the, they, they, they tried to, they, they, they prepared the food, and when it was time to eat, and husband and wife sat down to dine with the guest, the wife, she got up to set the lamp and turned it off, basically. So she extinguished the flame. And while they were sitting in the dark, both of them, they would pretend as if they were eating. They would move their mouths. They would make the sound. But of course, they were not eating anything because there was nothing to eat. But all of the food that they had, they gave to the guest. And he ate his full and went to sleep. The Prophet of Allah, the next morning, he called this companion uh, of uh, of his, Hazrat uh, Talha, Abu Talha, may Allah be pleased with him. And he was so happy. He was so overjoyed. And he said that, O Talha, uh, God Almighty was so pleased at your treatment uh, of the guest that he was well, if you could say God was laughing, was enjoying himself, which is also why I am laughing and I am um, so joyful. So this was just a very small story, short story, one of the many that we find in the early history of Islam, how people would treat their 
guests. So if you want to share, uh, you know, your um, your 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 views on this, if you have anything how we can be good hosts, then by all means do give us a call um, and zero two zero eight six eight seven. 7878. Now, we have, as I said, a number of guests with us on the line. Our first guest for today is um, Mrs. Amtul Mujib. She's the wife of the president of the Pan African Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, PAMA. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Wa alaikum Thanks for having me. Jazakallah for joining us today. Um, Sister Amtul, you live in Scotland, but you are Ghanaian by ethnicity. Tell us about how Ghanaian culture impacts you when it comes to guest treatment. Um, um, yeah, let's just start off with that first. Yes, um, thank you. Um, I, I would like to say that Ghanaians are, are very loving and caring to, hmm. to all people. And right from childhood, my parents would receive guests on a daily basis. And obviously, being a Muslim as well, hospitality is one of our fundamental teachings, which carries lots of rewards. So it was very normal to me from my childhood uh, with this practice of service to all. And obviously, my dad was a missionary as well. So we, we did uh, have, you know, quite, you know, uh, guests coming to our, our yeah. house on a basis here. Yeah. Okay, um, and and what aspects of Scot- Scottish culture? Now you living uh, in, in Scotland, have you you know maybe picked up that are positives in in, in dealing with guests? Yes, um, I, I would say that um, Scottish people are really really very nice hmm. and respectable people. I actually lived in England, um, I think, for a year or two before I moved to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And I've been here for, I think, um, about 15 or 16 years. Oh, wow. To be honest with you, I've really enjoyed living with them because, you know, it feels like you are home. I mean, they would they are really very nice, respectable. Mm. I mean, they would, you know, help you in anything. If you meet somebody, you know, you need something, I mean... They will do whatever you want for yeah, you. So. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think I've really. Yeah. Now, yeah. Sister Amdul, the, the question that we as parents, we always ask that. I mean, you've, you've spoken about um, the experiences that you had with your father, him being a missionary, and you seeing and observing all of this. I'm sure you, as a mother, as a parent, how, how do we make sure that we instill this importance of being good hosts in, in the next generation and our children? Yeah, so. I think it's it's more of education uh, in terms of the teachings of Islam and the examples of the prophets and the companions and obviously a beloved Huzu obviously have spoken about this also so many times and the rewards uh, we get from that. So and obviously children witness it, witnessing it at home as well. So if the children see their parents uh, in this all the time and also involve them in doing so, such as obviously receiving the guests, you know, saying Islam, being kind and then give priority to guests, then inshallah, I think with prayers, uh, they will learn to be hospitable. Inshallah. And one more thing, sometimes we have guests coming and, and we really... <laughs> We really don't want to. I mean, you you might have had a long weekend. The kids might be tired. You might be tired. How can we keep motivated and overcome feelings of of you know negativity sometimes towards guests? 
Yes, uh, that that is very true. But I think obviously being being a Muslim yeah. and what we are taught is it's just about the the blessings you get you get from it, and then you know trying to do something that would obviously please Allah. Yeah. If we look at the example of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I mean there are so many examples of him, you know, being hospitable, the loving and care, you know, he's shown to people. And then we know from his companions as well, you know, that, you know, their family, they sacrificed everything they, they, they had for the sake of, you know, uh, service to uh, humanity. So I think it's it's more of, you know, the teachings of Islam and then the blessings uh, we get from that. Yeah, wonderful. And as far as Ghana is concerned, I, I, I you know, Sister Amto, I was, I was there. I had the good fortune. I was, you know, very fortunate enough to to spend two months there, and I've spent Eid there as well. I've lived with, you know, two two brothers of mine and and their family. It was an amazing experience, especially at Eid when everybody comes together to to share the food that they've brought, to share with other families, to share with their friends and and family members, and everybody who's there. It's just a big basically a big picnic and the houses are open for everyone anytime you you want to come the first thing you will get is probably a cup of tea if i'm not if i'm not mistaken but yeah thank you very much for 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 joining us today and for um sharing your experience um with us jazakumullah sanza Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Yeah, I do remember that. It was such a wonderful experience. Um, and if those brothers are listening in Ghana, assalamu alaikum to you, and thank you so much for welcoming me into your homes. Um, now, moving on, we were just talking about the early history of Islam and how one of the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, how he took care of one of the guests that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, assigned him. Um, Hazrat Muslimah, the second caliph of the Yemeni Muslim community, he stated in this regard that hospitality is a means of increasing blessings and mercy from God. It is a means of generating the love of God. It is mean it is a means of enhancing faith. Now, since preparing and hosting for guests, you put yourself into a place of discomfort. You are putting the needs of others and their care before your own. You are fulfilling basically what we talk about here on the Drive Time Show and also in Voice of Islam in general about the second part of faith, which is Hukukul meaning the rights that we owe to God's creation, the rights that we owe to our fellow human beings. So the second side of, of faith or the second part or the second, um, how would you say it? Yeah, well, the second part of faith is the rights that we owe to God Almighty, the Hukukullah, um, and this one specifically is talking about the rights that we owe to each other. So if we neglect one of them, and as we said over and over again here, um, you might have heard this, that if you are, um, yes, you're doing the rites that you owe to God Almighty, praying and everything, fasting and all of these things, but you're ne- completely neglecting your rights that you owe to your fellow human beings that uh, God Almighty has also instilled and all has also basically said that you must fulfill, then you cannot call yourself a, a, a true believer. You cannot call yourself a, a, a complete Muslim. Feeding your guests from your own um, 
from your own wealth, from your own 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 provisions, from your own risk, basically means that you are putting your trust in God Almighty that He will provide more for you if you take care of His creation. And in one verse of the Holy Quran, um, in chapter fifty-nine, verse ten, it says that. Um, and those who had established their home in this city before them and had accepted faith love those who come to them for refuge and find not in their breasts any desire for that which is given them, meaning the refugees, but prefer the refugees to themselves, even though poverty be their own lot. And whoso is rid of the covetousness of his soul, of his own soul, it is these who will be successful. Now, if you look at the early history of Islam, when the, when, the, when the early Muslims from Mecca, when they migrated to Medina, it wasn't hospitality for a couple of days. This was basically, if you could say, what permanent uh, a, a, a migration. They migrated from one place to another to live there. And the way that their Muslim brothers treated them, Muslim brothers and sisters, how they welcomed them, how they offer them everything that they had to share equally with them that gives you an idea what the what the level of hospitality what the level of of um service to 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 their guests what kind of um level they were at all right now we are asking you on our instagram poll uh if you go to our instagram story uh voice of islam uk how can we be good hosts to our guests? I'm sure there's a few wonderful um, replies that we have received, and I will get them in just a little bit. But before we do that, we are going to go to our next guest for today. Raj Tandi is with us online. Raj is a food culture, style, and travel blogger based in Vancouver, Canada, and with us on the line. Good afternoon, PC Pony, and welcome to The Draft Time Show, Raj. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, you are basically um, a, a um, so- someone who posted on Instagram about this Sweden gate that was, you know, that gave us basically ins- the inspiration to this to the show today. Um, um, what what was it exactly that wasn't sitting right with you, if I may ask? So when I first saw this Reddit thread and this all this controversy, like so many people from the subcontinent, I just couldn't wrap my brain around this idea. You know, like how could you <laughs> sit across from someone, eat a meal, and not offer it to them? <laughs> and quite honestly, <laughs> I just wanted to understand. You know, I tried to approach it from a spirit of like learning and not be biased. Yeah. You know, to say, like, why would someone be this way? Why would a culture be this way? And it was a little bit, you know, jarring and confusing to me because I really, to be honest, couldn't understand, like, especially when it comes to young children, like, how can a community, because we always say, you know, it takes a village to raise children. And imagining having a child at your house and saying, like, hey, hang on a sec while I go have dinner. (laughs) Like, anybody from... Anybody from the subcontinent is like, my nanny and daddy are like <laughs> rolling over in their graves right now being like, you said that to a little kid. So really, it just came from curiosity. Like, you know, so yeah. it was just something I had no idea it would strike such a chord. Yeah. No, I, I had no idea this this even existed, to be honest, until I came across this this whole Sweden Gate issue. Um, but it, from all of the replies, uh, I mean, you, you said, did any 
like any of the replies that you received, any comment, did anybody try to explain it? And did any of that made remotely sense to you? So there was a lot of people who spoke up and explained that um, the Scandinavian countries at one point in time like struggled with a lot of poverty and food hmm. scarcity. So some of these rules and sort of norms began there. Um, also, a lot of people said that it's it's a different culture. Like they they don't welcome guests the way they do. They re- way we do. Sorry, and they require sort of pre planning and letting people know before you go to their homes. To be perfectly honest, though, like with even with all the explanations people gave me, I I still feel a little like even if I sort of try and understand that at one point in time there just wasn't enough food in 2022, it makes no sense to me. Like, you know, or even in the 90s when people were saying it was common for a country with abundance and economic well-being Mm. and enough food to continue the norm. So I wonder if people just didn't stop and think like we don't have to do this anymore. Interesting question. <laughs> so, in your opinion, then, um, what what makes a good good host? So, for me, the number one thing about hospitality is making people feel comfortable. Yes, and I think that starts from you know in opening your home only to people you're comfortable with. I don't believe in inviting people over for obligation or to sort of try and show off your hospitality. Yeah. I believe that you should you know welcome people in your home that you genuinely like and for me a good host makes you feel comfortable at their house i don't want to feel like i can't sit on your couch because it's too precious <laughs> or you know I, i i'd rather that you not bring out your best china yeah. it's make you, like nervous i'm happy to eat off of a paper plate just you know that hospitality i think comes from warmth from comfort um you know from good conversation and showing consideration for others you know asking yeah. them how they're feeling just good conversation goes a long way yeah, yeah. there's there's a word that uh, comes to my mind in in the urdu language i'm i never come across any kind of english uh, translation which which would do justice betakallafi basically so you're you're kind of relaxed chillaxed in front of each other you don't have there's no protocol basically involved isn't it oh i love that word and you know what's really amazing is The first time I heard that word, you know, Punjabi is my mother tongue, so I understand Urdu somewhat. Yeah. Uh, but when I heard that word, Betakalif, I remember talking to a friend of mine from Karachi and saying, what a beautiful word. And she said something to me. She said, you know, it's in the words that are not translatable yeah. that we learn about the ethos of a culture. True that. Very so much. Yeah. that, yeah, that is the word, right? Like, come in, be comfortable. My house is your house. Yeah. Like, that's... That's it. That's the ultimate host to me. Wonderful. Now, Raju, you share about food being your love language. If I can ask you, what do you connect with food, um, hospitality? What 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 can we connect with that? To me, with food and hospitality, it's not about what you serve, but it's again about there being sort of this level of comfort that I I never want someone to feel like the portion sizes are too small in my home. Like I want everyone to feel like eat as much as you want, eat to your, you know to your fullness, yeah. and there's more than enough to go around. And I also think food when you're being a host should be really approachable. Hmm. Sometimes I think we try and pull out like our most intricate, complicated, show-offy recipes when we have guests. 
But what I think is sometimes you have like a group of friends around some boxes of pizza and it's easy to eat. You don't yeah. have to think about it. It's comforting. And it's some of the most beautiful nights, you know? So I think for me, food doesn't have to be complicated. It just should support hanging out, having a conversation. It shouldn't be too awkward holding your plate, trying to cut something with a fork and a knife, you know? like Eat a burger with, think, with, with a fork and a knife, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah none of that. No, no pretentiousness in food. Sometimes we don't realize that we put that on our food as well. Yeah. Just, you know, make it easy, accessible. And it goes a long way to make something for someone that they love. So I, when I host people... I love to host people and make food that they like to eat. So yeah. I'll often ask people about their preferences and their favorites. And like, I think nothing makes you feel as good as you, when you say you visit someone's home and they're like, Oh, I know that you <laughs> love this dog. Yeah. So I made it yeah. like, that's the best feeling ever. That's it. That's it. Lastly, I want to ask you, what's your go-to meal when let's say that occasion comes when you have unannounced guests? So when I have sudden guests and I don't, can't think of what to make, I'm all about grazing boards. So like a lot of little snacks, cheeses, meats, yeah. um, like appetizers from the freezer, uh, olives, pickles, like things that people can snack on. Mm. And then if I have to go with a full meal, then I'm a big fan of ordering really good pizza and doing some really nice sides. There we go. And lastly, I said lastly, one more question, because you're a travel blogger as well. Uh, sorry, apologies for that. Um, what some of the places that you went and where you thought, you know what, this, this is, this is right? Oh, okay. So I always feel that way when I travel to the subcontinent, so to India. Yes, I haven't um, sure, yeah. been to Pakistan yet. It's on my bucket list. Oh. But very, re very recently, I was in the UK and I was in Glasgow and London. Hmm. And, you know, people in Canada are known for our um, niceness, I think. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we hear that, you know, sorry, I'm saying this on British radio. I'm, I'm like, no, don't worry. Don't worry. I've lived in Canada for five years. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So sometimes we hear that. But we had some beautiful experiences. You know, um, I went to the Punjab restaurant in Covent Garden. Like, what a welcoming place. Yeah. What a beautiful experience. We went to a place called um, the Paranta Box in Glasgow. And the, the chef was, I believe, from Islamabad, he told us. And he was just like the most hospitable chef at any restaurant I've ever been to, like checking on us. And, and you know, you were saying about like words that don't exist. That to me is like Mehman Nawazi, who is like, you came from Canada to the Paranta Box? Like he was checking up on us. It was beautiful. Like it's such a, so I'm biased. But it's always, I think, from the subcontinent, from the Middle East, you know, from that part of the world that I think you get the best hospitality. Wonderful. Raj, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. And um, thank you very much for sharing some of these wonderful things with us and with our listeners. Great to have thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. We are talking about hospitality. What makes or what do you think makes someone a good host? If you go to Voice of Islam uh, UK on Instagram, then you can leave some of your comments and we are going to make sure that we read out some of those comments. I think I, I had some of those comments in front of me, so I'll just ask for the... Ah, there we are. Um, be happy to see them. Make them feel at home. And I think this is, this, is a, this is a very important one. Be happy to, to see them or make sure that you do uh, show that you are happy to see them. Um, 
So, as I said, 02086877878 is the number for you to call. We are going to go to our next guest in just a little bit. But before that, let's move on and give you a little bit more information about hospitality in um, or for the prisoners of war. Now, um, Abu Uzair bin Umar, who became a prisoner of war in the Battle of Badr, the first battle that was fought by the Muslims, says that the Ansar, which were the helpers, meaning those who lived in Medina at that time, they would give him baked bread to eat, whereas they would survive on dates. Many a time it so happened that even if they got a small piece of bread, um, they would offer it to him instead of taking it themselves. He says they would insist if I resisted. Scottish Orientalists and colonial administrators say that as Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had directed the Ansar and Muhajireen would treat the prisoners of war with love and kindness. Some prisoners of war themselves testify that God might have mercy on the Medanites who would mount them and themselves walk, feed them cooked bread of wheat and themselves subsist on dates. Our next guest for today is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Imam Zahir Ahmed is with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. It's a pleasure and thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you, Imam Zahir, with us on the line. Islam places a big emphasis on hospitality. If I can ask you, would you have any examples of early Islam and hospitality? Um, yeah, uh, so as the other guests have mentioned uh, on the show prior, that hospitality is actually a very main thing within Islam. And for that, even within the Holy Quran, it mentions it in numerous occasions, not only with uh, verses, but anecdotes as well of the Prophet, uh, such as the Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, right? We know that when he was visited by guests, even without them asking, he had already gotten prepared. Uh, he had already prepared something for them. And uh, in the Quran, it mentions that it was not long, uh, or uh, Prophet Abraham was not long in bringing a roasted calf and presenting it in front of them. Right? And then similarly, with, uh, with when we look at Prophet Lot, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, hmm. uh, we see that you know his culture, his society, they were very much against having uh, outsiders uh, amongst them and uh, against hospitality in, in that sense. But even amongst all this hostility and opposition, he carried out his task, and it's a great example for us. Uh, and then, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he has mentioned that whoever believes in Allah and the last day should be hospitable with his or her guests, Right. So just from this context, you can see the great emphasis that Islam is portraying and giving to hospitality. Mm. Uh, within When we study history and we look at the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, we find that, you know, when he first received the first revelation uh, and became ordained as, uh, I, I guess you would say, uh, as a prophet, um, he was in shock about this, and his wife, Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, she said that, you know, she reassured him and said that God would not be angry with you yeah. because one of the things that you do is that you're very hospitable and you take care of, uh, and you stand up for the rights of others, mm. right? So this is something that is not only within Islam, but uh, I guess you could say it was within the culture of the Arabs yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, even 
you know, there's certain incidences in the life of the Holy Prophet that I always remember when I'm trying to be hospitable as well. Hmm. Um, one of them is, uh, I remember this one incident, which is, which I've remembered and has always drawn my attention to this, is that, um, you know, there was someone who was visiting uh, the Holy Prophet and this person was a bit sick. So they were while they were staying with the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of be upon him, they soiled their bed, right? And out of sheer embarrassment, because, you know, as a grown person, uh, you do this, you're embarrassed. So hmm. what they decided is that they would leave early in the morning without letting anyone know. Hmm. So after doing this, they left, but then they realized they forgot something. And when they came back, they when they came back, they had seen the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He was cleaning up uh, the soul of bedding himself. himself yeah. right? So this is something that, you know, instead of telling someone else to do it, the Holy Prophet, mm-hmm. uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did that himself. And then not only that, he didn't try to bring attention to it, yeah. because he tried to <laughs> maintain the dignity of the guest yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. That's true. Now, Imam Zahir, you are currently serving as a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in, uh, in Honduras, uh, if I'm correct. And I want to ask you about Honduras as well. So Honduras has a unique and diverse mix of people. How is the hospitality in the country? How has your experience been? And I know you served in other South American countries as well before Honduras. How has that been so far for you? Um, So generally within Latin America, I would say in all the countries that I've I've either served or visited, for more than a week or two weeks and have gotten to know the locals there. Um, as you mentioned, I've, I've, I've served in other countries as well. I was in Belize and in Ecuador as well. And in general, uh, there's two things I think that, you know, need to be remembered here. One is the level of, or the financial situation of, of these countries. So most of the time the people themselves are very hospitable or, 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 generous and kind however when you know i've been uh, here in Honduras, i have some uh friends who we uh whenever i've gone out with them they they've either uh paid for it or i've taken care of them um you know it, the hospitality is like that of friends hmm. and it's not that uh as your previous guest said that you know uh, someone come over, you're not bringing out like nice <laughs> It's a more of a family and friendship relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So I have those type of friends as well. Yeah. Then there's other people, depending on their um, financial situation, when you go visit them, uh, obviously the means, they, they, you, you wouldn't expect the same type of uh, hospitality in regards to like, the food and everything, mm-hmm. but the general kindness and attention that I find that is always there. Yeah. If they don't have anything else, they will offer me water. Or yeah. if they don't, uh, if they don't have water in the house, then they will send someone to go get it. Wow. And you know, this is for. It may not seem as something big, but from my point of view and understanding, yeah. the it's a gesture that counts, it's, isn't it? It's yeah. <clears throat> yes, it's very. It's huge. Yeah. Um. I want to ask you about uh, your annual convention as well. So you just celebrated the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention of the um, community in Honduras. 
Um, how, how did that go? How did you ensure your guest hospitality? What, what were some of the numbers that we're looking at, maybe? Uh, yeah, so Alhamdulillah, we celebrated the second uh, annual convention, Joseph Solana of Honduras, uh, a few months back. And uh, so the reason why I mentioned the second one is because in the first one, what we did uh, was that when we had locals coming in from different cities to the capital, um, we situated them like in regards to their housing, some of them, yeah. they stayed with other Jamaat members. So the culture they have is a bit similar and uh, the language they speak is a mm. bit similar. Instead of putting people in different, uh, people of different cultures and different languages in one yeah, yeah. space where they can't really communicate, especially when it's at nighttime when they're trying to relax, right? Yeah. So we did that uh and alhamdulillah the the local members in the capital they were very welcoming and they opened up their house uh for some of the members and they allowed them to stay for about a week wow right and then even even cooked for them uh especially this goes back to the the culture that they have and the diet they have yeah right so uh and, but this year unfortunately you know because of the pandemic and everything, we couldn't have that type of situation. So we hosted some of the members uh, at the mission house ourselves. Okay. Now, in regards to more things that we did to accommodate, um, you know, as your previous uh, speaker was saying, that one of the things that they like is that, you know, when someone says, oh, uh, I made this for you because I know you like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we try to do is that you know, during the Jalsa days, we try to have a mix of the a mixture of the food that's being served okay. sometimes it will be more so local which would be like uh rice and beans uh or uh one of the things we try to do especially is uh there's a type of dish called baleadas here okay which is like uh tortilla uh and then it has egg it has bean paste it has uh some other vegetables and you basically make it like a calzone, mm -hmm. meaning fold it in half, and then you serve it, uh, right? And so we got the local members to make that. And similarly, we got some of the local members to cook um, some uh, rice and beans, which they cooked with uh, coconut milk and the beans they prepared whichever way they were going to, right? And we prepared that. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, Jota and hospitality is also that not only do you take care of that, but you try to introduce something new to them, which you hope is good as well. Yeah. So what we did once was that we had uh, we had uh, guests, um, volunteers from uh, Canada coming, and one of the volunteers, he's a specialist in cooking, so he prepared uh, potato soup. Ooh. And over here, seeing potato soup is like very rare, and really strange so when the members first saw it they're like no we don't want this uh we want chicken or something else and we're like okay that's not a problem but at least try it right because one of the things that we try to do is you know hospitality goes both ways yeah yeah <laughs> not only is it the guest, but then the as the host you're being hospitable but as a guest you have to be hospitable as well yeah yeah <laughs> and uh I know for a fact you being a missionary and he served in Ghana and I myself was in 
the Gambia for about six months. Uh, this is something that's very important yeah. and goes to the heart of the matter of yeah, someone's yeah. dignity and respect. So they tried it and they absolutely loved it. They were like, forget the chicken, give us the potato soup. So this is uh, <laughs> something that we try to keep, uh, Wonderful. A lo- put a lot of attention for. Wonderful. Imam uh, Zahir, I uh, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, you being um, from 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 Canada as well, I think it's Canada Day today. So happy Canada Day to you, sitting <laughs> yeah, sitting okay. in a different country. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for for joining us today. It was great to have you on as always. And uh, our best wishes to the members in Honduras. Jazakallah, assalamualaikum. Thank you very much for having us and please keep us in your prayers. Assalamualaikum. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. With that, we're going to move on to our next guest right away. With us on the line is Musavar from the UK. Musavar, assalamualaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Waalaikumsalam, how are you doing? Alhamdulillah. I'm not going to ask you about the UK hospitality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say anything about that if you want, but you had the opportunity to go to, what was it? Um, Jordan, wasn't it? Correct, yes. Jordan. Um, Tell us yeah. about that. How was that experience? Oh, I think uh, Jordan is pretty hard to put into words. Uh, but I actually went to Jordan last year around September. Mm-hmm. Well, I went there for about a week. Uh, we did three days uh, at the Dead Sea, uh, stayed there for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Within that time, we actually went to Petra, which is obviously uh, one of the wonders of the yeah, world. Yeah. Um, honestly, that cannot be put into words. You just have to go there, see it with your own eyes. Um, it was unbelievable yeah. uh, experience. Um, and then, um, yeah, we had really great um, experience there with the individuals. Like, people were very respectful. Again, this is uh, more so towards, like, uh, the Petra sort of area. Yeah. Uh, people were very welcoming, very nice. Um, I feel like I've been on other holidays where you kind of go to tourist sites and stuff and people try and rip you off. Mm. Uh, whereas with Petra, I didn't feel the same sort of wire coming, um, similar to where I have seen that before. Um, and then the remaining four days that we were there, we ended up going to Amman, which is the main city. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. People there were very welcoming. Um, I never had the fear where I thought um, someone's going to steal something from me. Um, I've had that issue when I went to Morocco, for instance. Um, again, that was just my personal experience. Mm. But yeah, I never had that sort of uh, fear when I was in uh, Jordan. People were very welcoming. Um, one of the greatest things we actually had was we had a tour guide for the week. And this guy was honestly excellent. Like, um, he started as a tour guide uh, at the start of our trip and mm-hmm. ended up becoming our best friend. Oh. Uh, he invited us to his house um, and his missus uh, made us food. And uh, we had uh, mansaf, which is one of their traditional dishes yeah. uh, together, uh, which was uh, really, really nice, actually. Wonderful. Now, what was the main way in how do you think um, Arab hospitality differs to what you see um, here in the UK? Or, you know, you can also talk about, you know, the other places that you went to maybe in the uh, in, in the world in the past. <clears throat> yeah, um, I think uh, if I was to compare like the Western society versus like the Arab culture. So, for example, I've been to like Dubai, uh, I've been to Morocco, uh, obviously Jordan. Um, and then obviously like been going to like Spain, Germany. Uh, seeing that sort of side of the world, France and Belgium as well. I think uh, one of the key things I see is uh, when I went to these Arab countries, especially when I went to his house um, and I proper got a good feel for like the Arab culture, uh, we all day tend to eat in a massive plate, which mm-hmm. was uh, very interesting. That was a first, uh, first time experience for me uh, where, you know, and we ate with our hands. Um, obviously, I do mm-hmm. eat with my hands sometimes at home, but obviously eating uh, with my hands in the same plate as everyone else is a bit of a, 
an experience in itself, I would say. Uh, but it was interesting, though, uh, having to eat in the same plate. But um, Arab culture, they're very much driven eating in one massive, large plate yeah. um, and eating together. together uh, so that was yeah. really interesting. And uh, yeah, it was nice because it's nice how it kind of brings you together um, and you eat with people. And there's obviously a sunnah as well. Yeah. Now, not wanting to put down British hospitality, but why why do you think should British Muslims be proud of their mixed culture and how it has you know, navigated them to, to, to good guest, guest treatment? Yeah, I think uh, one thing that British culture excels in is the fact that, you know, it brings everyone together. So, for example, there are strict timings in terms of when people eat, and when people eat, they all eat together. Um, so I think that togetherness uh, is uh, essential, especially uh, when people are out, like kids are out in school, people are at work, for example. So when everyone comes back, especially dinner time, I think that's probably one of the most important meals where everyone actually sits together um, and enjoys um, a family meal. Um, so I think that's something very highly recognised in yeah. British culture. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of guest treatment, I think, uh, you know, British are definitely far, you know, they're very well led in terms of how they respect their guests um, yeah. when they come to their house. Um, and I think that's probably what attracts a lot of people to come to London or the UK. Yeah. I think that's another thing, right? You know, it's all about hospitality and right. in terms of giving respect to your guests, which is why we have such a diverse, sort of diverse people in this little country. Okay, and then lastly, then, sir, I want to ask you about mm. the annual convention of the Amdi Muslim community. The Jalsa Salana is coming up. For listeners who might yeah. not know about it, who have not been there, what kind of hospitality is on offer? What What have you seen? Um, my opinion on this is that you will never, ever find any sort of hospitality that, that compares to what you find at Jalsa Salana. If anyone wants to experience the best of the best hospitality, Jalsa Salana is the place to be, in my opinion. Um, mm. I think uh, just being there myself and obviously being uh, someone who's doing duty, um, you know, we res- we're told to respect and it's, it's kind of in, it's, it's been embedded into us now, obviously doing duties over the years that, you know, we're supposed to treat everyone with respect, uh, with abundance of love and respect, uh, irrespective of uh, their race, culture, religion. Mm. So, you know, we don't like exclude anyone. It's all, it's, yeah. all, it's a very inclusive environment. We're the whole uh, nation, isn't it? Exactly, especially being UK, right? So we definitely lead the way. Uh, not saying the others don't, but yeah. obviously, you know, having <coughs> beloved Hazur over here, we have to respect each member very yeah. respectfully. Again, they're guests of the Protestant side as well as uh, they're there to visit yeah. um, our beloved Hazur. So, yeah, we have to treat everyone with uh, the highest of respect. That's true. Muzawar Jazakallah, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to, to have you on. Assalamu alaikum. How can we be good hosts to welcome our guests? We're going to move on to our next guest for today. And we are going to go to, if I'm not mistaken, to Puerto Rico. With us on the line is our brother Alejandro. And we're going to talk about uh, the hospitality in Puerto Rico and how that plays out. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show, brother. Wa alaikum assalam. Jazakallah, thank you so much for, for joining us today Great to have you on Now, as I said, you live in Puerto Rico Which is a territory of America But do you see your culture as American or Latin? And how do, how, how do you, or how, that, how does the Latin culture treat, treat their guests? Well, it's a, um, a territory that belongs to the United States of America As you just mentioned, but has a totally different uh, culture uh-huh. 
Um, uh, our culture is composed actually of African, Spanish, and the Taino culture are, uh, are originally indigenous people. Uh, but although there is uh, practically um, uh, nothing left on, on the list of these, and the treatment of guests generally in Latin American culture is um, uh, warm and friendly. And we always try to make the guests uh, feel comfortable and, and happy. Wonderful. Um, so, give us an insight in how, into how how guests are hosted. If uh, you know, at a typical um, uh, Puerto Rican or a Latin event. Um, well, I cannot describe, uh, for example, the Latin uh, Latin not share uh, same culture. You know. The world has its own customs, and uh, you know, even own country, every municipality has its own customs, yeah. foods, uh, drinks, etc. So it's not all the same. But generally, um, we try to make uh, guests uh, feel um, uh, welcome. If you know, I could similar to the, the environment of Salana, for example, yeah. uh, we try to have food and, and drinks for everybody, and try to make them feel you know, that they're they're at home, you know. Hmm, wonderful. Uh, I was going to ask you about this as well, as as because you are a convert to Islam, Ahmadiyat. Do you see guest treatment in your culture and and the Islamic hospitality match up? Well, I say maybe. Uh, well, I could maybe mention the um, uh, Hispanic uh, culture because I'm used to it now. And, <laughs> you know, Jamaat, uh, it's, it's very common. So I say there are huge similarities, but like in Islamic culture in general, I really wouldn't know uh, to say yeah. yes or no because I wasn't raised there. But uh, following the example of you know Ahmadi Muslims, I would say there is a lot of you know similarities in the treatment. You know, uh, we try to stay humble and, and make everybody feel happy, and we you know there for everybody and, and fulfill their. Wonderful. Brother Alejandro, thank you very much for, for, for joining us today. Zakla for your time. It was great to talk to you. And all the best to, to you as well. Assalamu alaikum. All right. Now, this was just to give you um, some flavor of uh, the different traditions, the different cultures around the world when it comes to hospitality. Some of the things that have been mentioned, we're going to talk about them in just a little bit um, and, and, and you know reiterate some of the things that uh, some of our guests mentioned. Imam Zahir Ahmed, we spoke to him about the Jasa Salana, the, the, the annual convention of the Ahmadi Muslim community. For us as Muslims, yes, of course, you have the examples of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and there's nothing that can replace it. You have these utmost um, uh, sacrifices of 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 devotion, of of wealth, of time, of you know, of their own food that have been shared with the guests that came to them at that time. But in this day and age, as Musawwar Brother Musawwar was talking about, the annual convention is something that we see here, not just in the UK, but around the world. Every community that has been established in every country, they have this annual convention. And a big part of that is the 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 langar or the, the ziafat, meaning the hospitality side of things. Pre-COVID or pre-pandemic, the thing, uh, the the situation was that here in 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 the UK, in the countryside uh, in Hampshire, you had uh, more than thirty thousand people attending this event. Now these are thirty plus thousand people from not just the UK but from around the world. So you have 
it starts from picking them up from the airport until that you have to drop them off or you drop them off back at the airport and everything in between so you have the different cuisines the different diets you have the different um uh, accommodation types you have the different types of transportation you have to keep in consideration uh, that you you have to cater for both men as well as women you also have to cater for for children for families with children and so much more and all of this was the duty was assigned to the members of the Ahmadi Muslim community here in the UK so you had people cooking food in different places around uh, the, the London area so it could be transported to the Hampshire uh, countryside and then on the site you had languages being provided f- so people could understand the speeches the, the the talks that were given and of course the main events which were the speeches of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that, that could be provided to every single member who was attending that event and we're talking about from more than, I don't even know, but let's say, I don't think I would be lying if this was more than 50 countries um, um, that people were coming. I'm sure it was more than 50 countries that people were coming together and they all had, (coughs) apologies, they all had to, uh, they all needed to understand what was being said so you don't feel um, left out, basically. But, in the lifetime of the of promised Messiah of the Amdi Muslim community, he actually took care of himself of taking care of these guests. We're talking about the Messiah of the age, the prophet of the age, taking care of the guests that came to visit him himself. So providing that food, making the bedding and everything that was involved with that as well. Our next guest for today is um, a wife of a missionary currently serving in uh, Istanbul in Turkey. Dr. Tuba Ahmed Bart is was with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me. Thank you very um, much. Yes, Jazakallah for joining us today. Um, Dr. Tuba, if I may ask you um, that... Uh, You've been in in, uh, in in Turkey. Your husband is currently serving in in Istanbul, as I mentioned. Um, can you tell us more about the hospitality in 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 in, in that country of Turkey? Assalamualaikum. Yes, I can. Um, but first of all, I have to correct. Um, I'm not a doctor yet. Um, <laughs> Inshallah, you will be. So I had to correct this. Okay, sorry. Inshallah. Um, so yes, about the hospitality of. The Turkish people, I ha- um, I could write a book um, <laughs> because they're so kind and loving people and also caring. Um, I must say I've been here, uh, coming here every now and then from 2018 and living here for over ha- one and a half years. And um, it's something, uh, the hospitality of the Turkish people is something I had a completely different opinion when I was living in Germany. Hmm. And um, I must say everyone who comes here be the family member, be a friend visiting here in Istanbul or any um, member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, they're all impressed uh, about how kind and friendly the Turkish people are. And also mothers, um, they, I think, um, can confirm it the most that um, the Turkish people are very very child-friendly. So um, Uh you would not believe that uh, walking through the streets in Istanbul... um, 
every stranger uh, is um, like that's my experience um, that he will get help without even asking. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something very um, special to the Turkish people mm. that they are um, um, like you don't have to ask for help yeah. when you're struggling with your child when you're um, or even if you're not struggling mm. they like to make life easier so you can just yeah wonderful yeah, um, now coming to 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 us as, as hosts and this is this is a question that we're asking our listeners on 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 Instagram as well um how we can be good hosts i want to ask you in your opinion how can we really make guests feel comfortable who who come to us and i i know being um the wife of a missionary you you have to welcome people yeah because you are basically uh, propagating the message of islam ahmadiyyah so sometimes mm-hmm. you 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 will have to host uh people as well how 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 do you make that um comfortable for them okay um so um a, a speaker before me decided that the hospitality is all about making people comfortable and um i think that the main aspect is being comfortable yourself. Mm. So when you are confident and comfortable yourself, you guys will all feel at home um, and this feeling of home at a, a completely new and um, unfamiliar place is something that, um, I, in my opinion, a very uh, main aspect of hospitality and um, uh, the well-being and, um, of the guests must be... Um, like the most important thing, and um, how can I do it? Um, you're right, completely right, especially because Istanbul is uh, an international city. We have a lot of guests, hmm. and um, I, we prepare every Jummah prayer um, that we might uh, receive guests. Um, also, uh, guests who um, we did not expect. Um, so it's like a reset day to... Um, uh, make them feel at home, to welcome them and ask them for a cup of tea, uh, to speak with them, to um, yeah, offer them food. And um, I think the most important part of uh, good hospitality is um, loving to um, be with them and uh, expressing mm. it. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, now... Yeah. Uh, Sister Tuba, lastly, I want to ask you. You mentioned, if I and correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned when you were living in Germany. Is is that correct? Uh, I was born and raised in Germany. Okay, so perfect candidate to talk just very briefly (laughs) at the end of the show. German hospitality. We've heard a lot about it, or maybe (laughs) not about it. But what what's your take on that? Um, what have I heard about it? But a lot of people um, say we're, Germans are angry, they're stern, there is no such thing as friendliness. Um, how okay. much of that is true? Um, I would, I, I mean, I am, um, I would say I'm German, um, so I would disagree with it uh, completely. Um, but I think the main aspect, when I can compare the Turkish hospitality with the German hospitality, is um, the formality, I think. Huh. I think Germans are very formal and they really want to be perfect and being um, like the perfect host. And um, um, and also this distance is, I think, the point which makes them, um, which makes other people assume that German might be angry, but they're not. Yeah. Um, it's, um, um, that's something I have learned here in Turkey. In Turkey. 
that uh, warm welcome is um, yeah. um, being at home. And uh, Germans are very friendly and kind, and um, they just keep a distance. I think that's the main point. That's true. Uh, that's the main difference. Something to be learned still. But thank you very much for, for joining us today um, and uh, for, for sharing some of the experiences that you've had in the lovely country of Turkey with us on the line. And Germany. Uh, and Germany, of course. Uh, to Ahmed Butt, wife of a missionary currently serving in, in the lovely country of Turkey. Assalamu alaikum, Jazakallah. And just for the Germans out there, Gastfreundlichkeit. Isn't that the word for hospitality? That's the one I could come up with. Not that harsh, actually. Um, so this brings us to the end of today's program. We spoke about the NHS in the first half of the program and talking about the pressures and the um, you know, huge uh, understaffing and, and, and other challenges that the NHS is facing. And I think something that I wanted to mention, and I have mentioned, I think, twice in the first hour, that do have some patience pray and everything is going to be all right lastly here in the second half of the program we spoke about hospitality and you probably got just a gist of what hospitality actually is all about today's program was researched and produced by sabiha tariq and Ms. tariq jazakallah to both of them thank you very much for uh, listening in we're going to be back with you on monday inshallah from all of us assalamu alaikum <laughs>